Good evening. Thank you all very much for coming. Um, my name is Nick Stern. Um, I'm the IG Patel Professor of Economics and Government here at the LSE. Um, it's an enormous privilege for me to introduce a good friend and a tremendously distinguished economist, Raghu Rajan, here. Um, some of you will have been introduced to him already last night, um, but perhaps not all of you, so I will make the introduction uh, again. Um, he, is, uh, he was educated first uh, in India at Madhavad and Delhi, and then at MIT. Um, he's been most of his academic life at the University of Chicago, um, a very distinguished professor there, who's done enormously important things, both technical and uh, practical. He's been a real intellectual leader and uh, a real leader in public life. Um, in public life, as the chief economist of the IMF and as the um, governor of the Reserve Bank of India. And if you want to do those jobs, you have to be more than brilliant. Uh, Raghu is, of course, brilliant. Uh, you have to be wise, you have to have judgment, and you have to have a strong back. And uh, Raghu has all those things. And um, you can't attribute the list I just gave to very many people, but you can uh, to Raghu. Um, we share one or two things which I'd just like to draw attention to. One is that um, I.G. Patel, who's, it, which is the name of the chair that I hold, uh, was a, a wonderful economist, and he was both governor of the RBI and director of the London School of Economics. So it's uh, a special pleasure that another distinguished, uh, very distinguished governor of the RBI is, is, with, us, is with us today in the uh, tradition and in the spirit of I.G. Patel. The other thing I wanted to mention is we were working together on the G20 uh, allegedly eminent persons group on um, the reform of uh, the international financial institutions, the reform of the governance of those institutions. So we worked together uh, for a, a big part of the last couple of years, and that was a great pleasure, and I, I learned enormously from that experience. And the last thing I'm going to do before asking um, Raghu to talk to us is to mention his recent book. Um, some of you will have heard reference to it on the Today programme uh, this morning. It's uh, Third Pillar, colon, How Markets and the State Leaves the Community Behind. And it's an informative title, so don't forget to uh, buy the book. Um, but uh, today, uh, Raghu is giving the second and last of the Lionel Robbins lectures. Um, Lionel Robbins himself was a wonderful economist and uh, a, a real public figure of substance uh, and importance in the UK um, and in the London School of Economics. So there's some great traditions here, uh, particularly around Lionel Robbins, but also, of course, uh, around um, I.G. Patel. And it's a special privilege, Raghu, to have you with us today. Uh, Greg will be talking about liquidity and leverage. Liquidity and um, I, I can't say leverage. I'll do it properly. Liquidity and leverage, the two faces of liquidity. Thank you very much, Raghu. We're looking forward very much to uh, hearing you.
Thank you, uh, Nick. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here with, uh, with such a distinguished audience, uh, including uh, my teacher, Olivier Blanchard. Uh, and uh, um, what I'm going to do is, uh, is talk a little bit about uh, uh, liquidity. Uh, let me just uh, straighten this out. Okay, um, and uh, uh, what, what I talked about yesterday was, uh, was really why we have highly leveraged institutions. And uh, we didn't have any ups and downs, we didn't have any crises. Of course, Lionel Robbins is known, uh, amongst other, many other things, uh, for his book on the Great Depression. And I thought it would be appropriate to talk a little bit about uh, uh, the roots of uh, financial crises and uh, why that might lead to uh, that might stem from both liquidity and leverage and that's what this talk is about um, it's been 10 years since the crisis and uh, what i want to ask is uh, uh, you know what were the proximate causes of the crisis uh, what triggered the tightness in the system that led to uh, system-wide panic. Uh, part of it was, of course, the runs we talked about yesterday. But what, what, uh, uh, why did things change? What worked in rescuing the system? Why did things somehow magically turn around in uh, around mid-2009? Um, and uh, what lessons can we take away? Okay, So that's, that's where I want to go today. Um, and here is a... A uh, picture from the IMF's uh, uh, global financials, um, global financial stability review report. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I should have put that down. Uh, but uh, what you see is that before the crisis, we had a extreme period of easing across the world. These are global financial conditions, and up means easing, and there was an extreme period of easing. And then suddenly, uh, you know, financial conditions plunged for a few months during the midst of the crisis. Many arbitrage relationships, which we believe should hold that uh, there should be no arbitrage, suddenly there seemed to be the possibility of arbitrage. You could make money simply by being able to borrow uh, in certain markets. And uh, that period lasted for two or three months. Uh, certainly between, well, I should say six months, between the September of 2008 and March of 2009, and then slowly things started coming back. Uh, financial conditions started easing, and of course, uh, by 2017, they were back to where they had been just before the crisis, and there's something to be said about that also. Now, this is a somewhat disputed chart. The dispute is between Ben Bernanke and John Taylor, but uh, the, the, the issue is how loose was monetary policy before the crisis? And uh, by uh, measures of standard Taylor rule regressions and residuals, uh, essentially uh, negative means it was relatively accommodative. And you can see by this that Taylor rule residuals turned positive only approximately uh, towards the end of 2006. It, what, what this means is relative to what might be predicted by the Taylor rule, which is a standard measure 
of how um, you know, central banks uh, might behave, uh, policy was still easy, despite the fact that the Fed had started tightening uh, right from, uh, I think, the first quarter of 2004, uh, it had started tightening. But in terms of the residuals, they were still uh, negative until about 2006. And you can see that it took about a year after the, re uh, uh, about uh, three quarters after the residuals turned positive for lending standards in corporate loans to start, uh, you know, going from loosening standards to tightening standards. That's a measure of uh, corporate credit quality. And uh, in general, uh, uh, John Taylor would point to this and say monetary policy was too lax before the crisis, and that was part of the problem. Now, there's a debate between Ben Bernanke and, and, and John Taylor on what the appropriate Taylor rule uh, residuals are, and Ben would dispute the fact that it was lax before the crisis, but at any rate, this is out there for what it's worth. What, what, what I have here is for the euro area, you can see the same thing for the U.S. Fed. Uh, again, policy started tightening somewhere in 2006 with Taylor Rule residuals turning positive and uh, financial conditions, that is lending standards for corporate loans, as indicated by corporate loan officers, started really tightening only in 2007. So this does raise the, the broader question, were these easy financing conditions in any way responsible for what happened in the crisis? Because we had uh, fairly, um, uh, by these metrics, uh, easy monetary policy and associated with it fairly easy credit uh, standards. Uh, and it's only somewhere in 2007 that we started seeing tightening. Of course, we know that, uh, that there was a period soon after when we had the beginnings of the crisis. Now, uh, there is a paper by Borio, um, Claudio Borio at the BIS and, uh, and Lowe, Philip Lowe, who's now the uh, governor of the Bank of uh, Aust Australia, um, which basically suggests there is a pattern of correlation between credit growth and rising asset prices which typically ends in tears. When you see this combination, rising credit growth and rising asset prices, uh, it never uh, seems to work out well. And more recently, we've got a flurry of papers which sort of document these patterns around crisis. Uh, for example, Krishnamurti and Moore, I'll show you some pictures uh, shortly, show that credit growth and credit spreads are negatively related. You get more credit growth, but the spreads seem to narrow. So people are offering credit at low spreads. Uh, and just before the crisis, spreads seem to tighten. Things seem to get, uh, finally, the credit markets seem to recognize there's a problem. And of course, the degree to which the credit spreads are compressed before often indicates the depth of the crisis, the virulence of the crisis. Um, so the change in spread uh, predicts the subsequent output decline. It seems, in a sense, counterintuitive. Uh, you are uh, more uh, sort of confident that credit quality is really quite good, and then uh, you, your spreads narrow, but then you have a much worse crisis. So this is what, uh, what Krishnamurti and Moore show as the spread path. Spreads are essentially uh, uh, negative 
over time. Just before the crisis, they tightened substantially. And then as the crisis uh, um, endures, you find that spreads come down slowly over time. So this is the typical path for a credit crisis. And you can also see the credit path. The credit path, credit is growing. And then at around the crisis, which is time zero, it contracts substantially. And of course, the GDP path is a consequence of substantial credit contraction. So what explains these phenomena? And I, I want to suggest two explanations and then offer a third, not so much uh, to contradict these other explanations, but to offer something which is more directly connected to, to liquidity. So one explanation is, is herd behavior in credit markets. Everybody's lending, so everybody else lends. Uh, we, as a bank, don't want to say that conditions are tight, we don't know where to lend, because everybody else seems to find it easy to lend, and therefore uh, we actually make those loans. Um, uh, this kind of herd behavior, Chuck Prince had this famous quote before the crisis, and I think it'll f follow him forever, which is, when the music stops in terms of liquidity, things will be complicated. But as long as the music's playing, you've got to get up and dance, and we're still dancing. Now, that's the classic sort of, uh, uh, sort of um, indication of herd behavior. So I met him at a conference, and I asked him, so why did you say this? I mean, what, what was on your mind? <laughs> uh, uh, he was actually, he, he gave a very sensible answer, because he said, look, you know, my problem then was, yes, I was a little worried about credit standards, et cetera, but I had an M&A team. And that M&A team was basically saying, you know, uh, we, we're in it because we're doing deals and we get, we get uh, bonuses based on that. And you shut off our deal flow. You basically say, I don't trust credit quality right now, and there's nothing left for us to do, so we walk across to the competition. And his point was that I had to make a more longer-term decision uh, about credit, did I want an M&A team or not? And if I said, I'm going to get conservative, I would see these people walk. And uh, if I was not sure that things were going to go south, uh, maybe that was, not, that was not sensible. But more broadly, I, I think um, the point he's trying to make is it's hard for CEOs at that time to back off because you look like the loner uh, uh, and you'd better have uh, a strong story uh, to tell your shareholders, to tell your, uh, to tell your employees, why are we backing off? Because we don't trust uh, that the markets are getting right, even while everybody is piling into it in a big way. Again, this is the classic herd behavior phenomenon, uh, but he sort of verifies it in different ways. Um, an alternative... Uh, is the growing set of behavioral models. Uh, two very important ones are uh, the generally Schleifer and Vishni version, which basically says, um, you know, when we have these risks, we tend to neglect them. And we tend to uh, see sort of uh, um, uh, good news in, in, in uh, every data flow. And uh, to some extent, um, it takes a really severe adverse shock for us to change. And when we change, uh, we then tend to focus on the bad news rather than the good news. So, so we focus on the good news when things are, uh, are fine. Big adverse shock changes us completely. Uh, and we uh, then interpret uh, information based on the downside risks rather than the upside risks. 
Uh, a similar kind of uh, uh, result comes from uh, a very important set of papers by Ginocopoulos that basically optimists have, uh, have sway uh, when things are levering up. Uh, basically, um, uh, what happens is the optimists can pay more for, asset, for assets, so the pessimists will sell out, and at best they will, uh, they will lend to the optimists. The optimists will essentially believe asset prices are going up, and um, uh, you know, it will be verified for some time as more credit flows to the optimists and they buy the asset. What happens with the adverse shock is the optimists go out of business because they've levered up so much, they go bankrupt, and then the marginal investor in the market is now a pessimist. And so you have the abrupt fall in, in, in asset prices, but also an uh, a exaggerated downturn. So these are behavioral versions which talk about the move up. So um, uh, things are, are hunky-dory, and then there is a shock and things go down. The herd behavior version is we're all lending in good times because lending is the thing to do when everybody else is lending. As soon as the bad times come and some people cannot lend, we essentially recognize our losses at that time because we're not singled out as being the guys who made bad, bad plays. We herd together both in good times as well as in abysmal times. So let me take a different tack at this question. Why does, uh, why does leverage uh, increase and spreads decline? Same question as everybody else asks. Why does the real recovery take so long? And what role does easy liquidity or easy financing conditions play? Uh, and I'm going to offer a different explanation. Let me start first with what is liquidity. And, and in here, I go to a, a, a real, uh, really important paper by Schleif and Vishni, which talks about the intrinsic specificity uh, of assets and the fact that only a certain uh, set of players know how to buy uh, or invest in those assets. So you can think, for example, during the crisis, complex mortgage-backed securities, most people didn't know what their true value was, but a few players like BlackRock or uh, you know, a, a large uh, investment house like Vanguard had the capacity to look through those assets and see what their value is. So uh, when I talk about uh, liquidity, either of real assets or financial assets, what I mean is there are a small number of players who can buy those assets. If you're, it's a coal mine, it's other coal miners in the industry. If it's a fin financial asset like mortgage-backed securities, it's other financial players who have the expertise, such as a BlackRock or a Blackstone. And what that then means is that asset values are not necessarily always at fundamental value, what the present value of future cash flows will be, that they can be at a discount from that based on the buying capacity and the competition between these very, very uh, capable buyers. So if, for example, the expert buyers have limited wealth or limited buying capacity, the asset can trade at a severe discount. Okay? That's the notion of liquidity that Schleifer and Vishni have and uh, is important in what follows. So what I'm going to do is give you a very quick theory of, uh, of why expectations of high future liquidity can, in, in fact, incentivize greater leverage, but that greater leverage can crowd out other forms of maintaining borrowing capacity. So 
the system becomes overly dependent on liquidity to continue uh, uh, supporting leverage. When that liquidity dries up, essentially there is no further support to leverage and your borrowing capacity falls tremendously. And that then creates the downturn which takes a, a, a long time to, to recover from. So this is a little different from the behavioral models, uh, but you'll see, you'll see how it works. So here's, here's the model. There are no sigmas and betas here. I'm going to talk through the intuition, so don't worry if, you, uh, if, if you're not used to models. Uh, what you'll see is, is what, the, what the intuition is. So think of how a creditor can recover assets, uh, can recover and enforce debt contracts. Yesterday we saw one, one version, which I repeat today, which is they can threaten to seize the asset. If you borrowed against an asset, the asset can be seized by the creditor. Fearing that the creditor will seize the asset, you'll make some payment. This is the lending against collateral channel. Uh, and this works well in a boom when potential buyers of those assets are liquid in the schleifer Vishni sense. There are plenty of buyers for the asset. The asset trades at high value. So if your borrower does not repay you, you seize the asset from them and, and, and sell it to somebody else. Classic example of this is in a housing boom. In a housing boom, house prices are going up every, every month. You don't care what you know, the borrower's income is, what the borrower's uh, you know, uh, creditworthiness is. The underlying collateral value is going up significantly in price. So if they default on the loan, you're sometimes are even happy because you get to repossess the house and sell it on for a higher price. You certainly get to recover most of your, your loan. Uh, now this kind of liquidity is exogenous to the borrower. It's, it's driven by market-wide factors or industry-wide factors that enhance the wealth of potential buyers of assets, right? So the mortgage, your ability to borrow uh, a mortgage depends in some sense on the liquidity of houses in the market, which is driven by the prosperity of potential buyers who come into the market. A second way that you can enforce debt contracts against a firm, and this is something that people are increasingly paying attention to, is that you can also, uh, through better governance, through careful pledging of cash flows, create firm-specific structures that pledge future cash flows to creditors. I call this the governance channel. You can call this the cash flow channel. It is something that we increasingly are seeing actually works in debt contracts. The cash flows can also be pledged. For example, if I'm a firm which has good accounting uh, uh, disclosure, uh, I, I respect uh, you know, uh, gap accounting, for example. I have strong disclosure. I have tight covenants. I have a strong external governance slash monitoring mechanism that the tunnels by which I can divert cash flow from the firm are closed down. That means the cash flow is produced and stays in the firm. And then it can go out and get paid to the creditors. Essentially, there are ways that borrowers can make cash flows verifiable through improved governance. This is how in developed countries you get repaid not so much by the threat to uh, to uh, essentially um, seize collateral and sell it, but because you trust the accounting, because you trust that uh, those cash flows are verifiable. Um, so what I argue is this takes time to set up, is semi-durable, and attaches to the firm. So it's, it's, it's something that firms can do 
Uh, it's not exogenous to the firm. It's not an industry-wide factor like liquidity. This is, this is part of the governance. Now, these two modes interact, right? Uh, essentially, when I uh, increase the pledgeability of my cash flows, that's the governance channel, when I increase the pledgeability of my cash flows, when I make them more verifiable, it allows anybody bidding for the firm to pledge the future cash flows of the firm when they bid. They can say, I'm going to borrow against the future cash flows of the firm. I'm going to generate high cash flows. I'm going to pledge those cash flows when buying the firm, and therefore they don't need their own wealth they can essentially borrow against the firm's assets. Many leveraged buyouts, for example, take place with the entity borrowing, borrowing against the, the, the firm going forward uh, rather than um, against any wealth that they have. So that pledgeability, increasing that, increases the firm's debt capacity up front. However, uh, once a firm's um, uh, bidders, the bidders for a, 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 a firm's assets, pay full value for the firm's assets. They're not going to pay any more. So if, for example, they're plenty wealthy, uh, the bidders uh, from the industry for the firm's assets have plenty of wealth of their own, they don't need to borrow against the firm's cash flows in the future. They can pay full value for the firm based on their own intrinsic liquidity, right? So even though both of these enhance the borrowing capacity against those, uh, the firm's assets, what happens is there's also a substitutability. Once you can borrow full value against the firm's assets, uh, basically you don't need any more borrowing capacity. So if, in fact, there's plenty of liquidity in the market, you're going to say, I don't need to increase the pledgeability of the asset. Let me give you an analogy. Once the lender against mortgages know they can seize the, the, the house and sell it in the market for the full value of the loan, they don't really need to investigate the borrowing capacity of the borrower, uh, whether the borrower has an income, has any other assets, because they say the house is collateral enough. It's selling for full value. I will get my loan repaid. It's only when you can't seize it and sell it in the market for full value because liquidity is lower, that I am going to investigate whether, in fact, they have any, uh, any income, whether, in fact, they have any other assets. So that's the sense in which higher future industrial liquidity reduces the need to insist that the firm enhances pledgeability. And that's because industry insiders have sufficient wealth to pay for the firm without borrowing against its cash flows and um, essentially, uh, you, you cannot increase uh, debt capacity beyond that. So here's the, the quick model. Think about a situation where we have an incumbent who wants to borrow to buy a firm, and there's an upfront auction where, there's, uh, where people fight to buy the firm. One incumbent actually wins. Now, that incumbent finances himself with debt in part, to buy this firm, let's assume he starts with no, no cash of his own, he essentially wants to borrow as much to finance with debt. And I want to ask the question, what happens based on the liquidity he perceives down the line as well as how much uh, incentive do we want to keep for him to increase the pledgeability of cash flows of this firm so as to enhance debt capacity, okay? That's the question we're going to ask, and we're going to see 
in just a minute, that when you have a lot of liquidity anticipated down the line, when you have buyers who are going to pay high value for the asset, you tend to neglect the need to maintain the incentives to enhance the pledgeability of cash flows. And it turns out that one way you neglect those incentives by, is by enhancing leverage. Okay? That, that's where we're going in just a second. So uh, think about a situation where uh, this uh, person borrowing up front uh, wants to borrow as much as possible. Now, that person borrowing up front has liquidity down the line that he anticipates that, that uh, uh, people who, who uh, essentially are bidding for the asset uh, will have some amount of liquidity, and that will, the more liquidity they have, the more he can borrow up front because lenders to him know that they can essentially seize the asset and sell it to those who have liquidity if he defaults. Um, now, um, he may also have an incentive, knowing there's liquidity out there, to also increase the pledgeability of the cash flows. Now, why would he want to increase the pledgeability of cash flows, which essentially gives the lender more power to extract repayment from him because the lender has the ability to sell the assets for a yet higher price to potential bidders in the market, right? So um, why, would he, why would the incumbent who's borrowed, once he's borrowed, enhance the pledgeability of assets? That's, that's the question we want to ask. And let's assume that what he wants to do is, um, you know, he may have occasion to sell the assets himself. He may have occasion to borrow more against the asset to finance some new ventures. Uh, all these would essentially uh, make him increase the pledgeability of assets. Let me, let me slow down one second and, and just uh, go over what I'm saying to make sure everybody's on board. What we're trying to look at is the following question. Somebody wants to borrow against assets. How much they can borrow depends on how much those assets are worth in the future. Now, what determines how much those assets are worth in the future, basically what anybody else in the industry will pay for them. How much will in anybody else in the industry pay for them depends on, one, what their own wealth is, that is their liquidity, and depends to some extent on how much they can borrow against the asset when they bid for those assets, which depends on whether these, uh, the, the cash flows of the asset have been made pledgeable by the borrower. So the borrower, uh, one thing he can't control is liquidity. He knows what that is. What he can control is the pledgeability of cash flows. And the question I'm asking is, why would the borrower, after taking on all this debt, increase the pledgeability of cash flows? Why would he essentially make it easier for creditors to get repaid by him? Uh, because after all, that's coming out of his pocket. And the answer has to be that he may need to sell the assets himself because he retires, he wants to go, uh, uh, you know, uh, spend time on the beach, or he may actually need to raise more finance uh, over time, and that means that he may need to raise more debt in the future. Increasing the pledgeability of assets is one way of essentially keeping his borrowing capacity. Okay? So that's, that's where we are. But uh, what I want you to recognize is then there is a trade-off in setting pledgeability. I have borrowed a lot of debt. If I increase pledgeability, it allows me to sell the firm uh, for more when I'm no longer fit to run. 
So it allows me to get more at that point and pay down the debt. That's why I want to enhance pledgeability, because bidders at that point will be able to bid more. <coughs> On the other hand, uh, if I increase pledgeability, it raises the amount that financiers can get repaid by me. So if I don't want to sell the firm, but I want to continue running the firm, the amount I have to pay lenders increases. There's a trade-off. On one side, pledgeability increases how much I can sell the firm for, increases my effective uh, ability to, uh, to get a return on the firm, uh, but that's only if I want to sell the firm. If I want to continue running the firm, it increases how much I have to pay creditors. And there is, of course, a trade-off, uh, which do I pick? And it really depends on the probability of which condition is more likely. Do I want to sell the firm, or do I want to continue running it? But there's one more factor which affects that, which is the amount of debt I've taken up front. The more debt I have taken up front, the less incentive I have to increase eligibility, for obvious reasons. When I have taken a lot of debt up front, the creditors can extract more from me if I increase pledgeability. I lose if I increase pledgeability, right? So even though I gain because I can sell the asset for more, I, when I've taken more debt, I lose more because I have to pay the debt holder. Essentially, I have to buy the firm back from the debt holders when I stay in control, and that is costly because they can seize the asset and sell it for high value to potential bidders. So really, this, this uh, trade-off depends on am I going to be a continuing firm without much need to sell it, uh, or am I going to essentially have to sell it, uh, and uh, in which case I want to enhance pledgeability a lot. Uh, a management buyout, for example, where I know I'm going to sell the firm in a few years, has a strong incentive to increase pledgeability because I know at the end of it, I want to collect the cash. I'm not going to stay in control. A mature firm, which is not going to be sold to anyone, I have very little incentive to increase the pledgeability of cash flows because I don't need much financing. I already have all the investment in place. In fact, I want to decrease uh, the, uh, uh, the pledgeability if I can. Some of you who see this kind of uh, concept may recognize in it uh, Jensen's free cash flow problem uh, which some of you may have encountered, mature firms tend to have poor governance. And part of the reason why they might have poor governance is simply because they don't need new financing, and that makes them punt. Okay, so just to give you a sense of the interactions we've talked about, uh, essentially liquidity is the exogenous factor. That's, that's what the central bank, that's what financing conditions create. And uh, when you have a lot of liquidity, it becomes easy to borrow because lenders know they can always seize the asset and sell it to potential bidders down the line. So liquidity encourages leverage. Okay. Um, now, what does leverage do? Leverage tends to diminish the incentive to enhance pledgeability. Okay. So leverage, more and more leverage, because I know when I have to repay these guys a lot, when I am in control of the firm, I have a lower incentive to increase pledgeability. And therefore, in some sense, uh, through uh, liquidity-encouraging leverage, leverage decreases pledgeability. Okay? Similarly, higher liquidity out there directly also reduces the need for pledgeability because if there's a lot of liquidity, I know I can sell the asset for close to fundamental value. I don't need to enhance the value of the asset anymore by enhancing pledgeability. 
That then is the model. And what is the model? It's basically this. When I see high probability of future liquidity, I know there's a high capacity to repay debt even when I neglect legibility. I reduce governance, no problem, I can still borrow. If I then borrow, there's a lot of borrowing available for the firm. We borrow and uh, we get higher debt. A, 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 excuse me, we we'll borrow up front, we get higher debt, but that high debt reduces the incentive to raise pledgeability. So what we see is, as we have a prospect of higher liquidity down the line, we keep borrowing more. Uh, lenders are willing to lend that because they see that high liquidity spreads narrow. But as spreads narrow, um, I also see that very little incentive to increase pledgeability. What happens if that liquidity dries up? If suddenly that liquidity turns, and I find that that you know, uh, investors no longer have those funds, if that liquidity turns, I'm left high and dry. Because there's nothing to support their capacity. Neither do potential buyers have any wealth, that's the liquidity turning, but nor do I have any intrinsic capacity to borrow because I've neglected to maintain the cash flow, the pledgeability of cash flows. So what we have in terms of debt dynamics is a continuing boom leads to rising leverage, Falling spreads initially as industrial liquidity increases and debt becomes safer. Eventually, because I'm neglecting pledgeability, rising spreads and debt becomes riskier because there's some chance liquidity disappears. But if liquidity disappears, it's a long fall because debt capacity has fallen quite a bit. So downturns in this model are the anticipated liquidity doesn't materialize and debt capacity falls significantly. At that time, there's a credit squeeze because lenders no longer want to lend, given that nobody has liquidity out there, asset values have plummeted, because nobody can also borrow against these, these assets. And debt capacity stays low until pledgeability is raised. That will take time. You have to improve governance. That takes a long time. And it could take uh, um, uh, a long time also, because industrial liquidity, which is the other factor which could build up, takes time to build up. Okay. So what are the testable implications of something like this? Essentially, pledgeability should fall. Governance standards should fall as high liquidity persists. And this should be especially the case when there's a greater fall in industries that are undergoing booms. Um, in another paper, um, um, Doug Diamond, Yunzi uh, He, and, and, and I have applied this to emerging market booms. You, you can make the same kind of argument in emerging market booms as exchange rates appreciate. And um, at the same time, uh, as liquidity dries up, you should see uh, efforts to improve governance because there's nothing else supporting debt capacity. Now firms have an incentive to improve governance themselves. Here's, here's a, a paper which actually studies this in construction firms. And what it shows is before the crisis, if you look at the construction industry, which was doing much better uh, in, because that was the industry that was booming, you see creditors demanding a much lower fraction of, uh, of, um, 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 of firms to have unqualified audits. Having an unqualified auditor saying the auditors put their steam, uh, stamp of approval. Lenders are lending to the construction industry with a lower fraction of unqualified audits. In other words, they're willing to accept lower credit standards 
as the construction industry is booming. And as the construction industry uh, turns because of the crisis in 2008, they, the, this, the, this, the demand for audits increases. On the other hand, what you see in more normal industries is it tends to decline, uh, but, but not as much as the construction industry, and then picks up. If you look at the difference between the two, this makes it clearer. The difference between the credit standards of normal industries and the construction industry tends to widen during the, uh, the boom and then uh, narrow during the bust. Um, so what uh, the, the next question is, is, a, is to some extent, uh, what triggered the tightness? Why did things turn around so much? Uh, why, were, uh, why was uh, uh, there this panic that we've seen? So we, we, we've looked at loans to firms and explained why, uh, why some spreads may have risen before the crisis. But what we saw in the financial crisis is really widespread panic. We saw liquidity dried up for a large set of financial assets with uh, really significant price drops and a very high bid-ask spreads for, for a variety of assets. In fact, as I said earlier, there were real arbitrage opportunities out there. For example, covered interest parity, which uh, you know, in every one of your foreign exchange classes, you would have uh, been told is an arbitrage relationship. It, it sort of almost holds uh, on the nose. Uh, that stopped holding during the crisis. In other words, people couldn't even borrow to, uh, to do that arbitrage. Um, in this uh, environment, bankers essentially alleged a buyer strike, that there were some assets for which there were no buyers. Uh, now, in Chicago, buyer strike is a difficult term. There's always a price at which the market clears, but it seemed to be a price at which nobody was willing to sell, uh, given the price that, was, that prevailed. And even in this environment, well-capitalized liquid entities appeared to shun lending. Uh, there certainly was a sharp rise in central bank reserves held by commercial banks around Lehman's failure. So go, going back to the graph, what I want to explain is why this period of tightness, what created uh, the system-wide uh, wide panic once it started. And you can see this in, in a variety of places. Uh, for example, the average bid-ask spread uh, essentially widened considerably uh, for various loan indices. This is just one example. The red line is the bid-ask spread. During the crisis, it went, uh, it went haywire. Um, and, and similarly, the average bids fell during this time. So uh, prices fell, bid-ask spreads uh, widened. It seemed that there was no liquidity to be had. Uh, another close to arbitrage relationship, the CDS corporate bond debt basis, again, you saw substantial disruption to the, during the crisis coming back only towards mid-2009. So um, uh, in this, uh, uh, one is to explain why there was these, these widened spreads. The other is to explain why the recovery in asset prices. Was the recovery because of good news on fundamentals? Uh, and that's hard to say because unemployment stabilized only in 2010. The first month without job losses was towards the end of 2009. So the real side crisis was still going on. But somehow the financial side recovered much before in around uh, May 2009. And uh, you may argue that since the crisis was prompted by uh, mortgage-backed securities, it was good news on mortgages. 
But really, when you look at mortgages, the delinquencies on mortgages started declining only in mid-2012. And that's what you can see in these graphs. Unemployment continues uh, and, and starts declining only uh, way down. Uh, mortgage delinquencies really start declining uh, only 2010 onwards and, and, and really significantly 2012. So uh, the, the alternative explanation I want to offer for why there was a recovery and, and before that why there was a crunch is good news on institutions, not on fundamentals, that there was a greater sense of confidence that the key institutions in the market uh, were essentially uh, more solid. And the way I want to explain uh, what happened is to start again with this notion of liquidity. Supposing a group of banks held a, a, a set of assets, these complex CDOs, complex mortgage-backed securities, and so on, that had a limited set of buyers. And we know some of these banks had these, these very complex assets. Um, supposing these small set of buyers like BlackRock and so on who can buy these assets, and those buyers know fully well what these assets are worth. But they have limited funding. They can't fund the entire system. They're a small set of buyers. And let some of these banks, I'll call them the walking wounded just for, um, for clarity, uh, these are the guys with uh, a range of bad, bad assets. And they are banks that are not fully safe. They have some demand for liquidity that is going to come down the line. And if that demand for liquidity comes, uh, they may have to unload some of these assets on the market. Okay, so they may have to sell some of these complex assets in the market. And the reason for that liquidity may be because their depositors want to withdraw, their borrowers want their money, or there's a possible panic. So a bunch of walking wounded banks have complex assets. They may face a demand for liquidity. And the small set of buyers who are well financed, but not, not plentifully financed, who have the ability to buy now, walking wounded banks will have to sell these liquid assets at uh, fire sale prices because there's limited buying capacity. So those buyers will buy, but they will pay a discounted price. And that discounted price for some of these banks may be too low a price, and their capital may be wiped out. They may face insolvency, bank runs, and further asset sales of the kind that we saw yesterday. Okay? So what this means is that if I think there are going to be fire sales out there of complex assets, then the guys who can buy those complex assets are basically saying uh, there's a high potential return from buying those complex assets down the line. So let me preserve my cash for the possibility that I can buy these assets at a fire sale down the line. I'm going to hold on to cash. I'm not going to lend it to anybody. I'm going to keep it because those opportunities may come dramatically and suddenly, and I want to have the cash at that point. There's a convenience yield associated with cash at that point. So essentially, when I anticipate future fire sales for a security, it implies very high future returns, which then implies that there's a very high value to having liquidity today because I'm uncertain when that potential investment opportunity will emerge. So what this means is for those assets, complex assets, which are uh, potentially going to be sold in a fire sale, today there's a discounted price, 
but the price may become even more discounted in the future when a whole bunch of banks are dumping that asset in the market because they have liquidity needs. And so the entities that have cash and are solvent and can buy those assets will not part with that today. There is, in a sense, a credit freeze today because nobody wants to lend knowing there's a potential high return from buying illiquid assets in a fire sale. And what that also means is that across the system, because there are these wonderful opportunities, essentially the implied rate of return for any use of cash increases. You hold on to your cash because the opportunity use of that cash is high. There is effectively a credit freeze today because nobody wants to invest in, uh, in anything that ties up cash. Um, what about securities trading? We said the securities trading dried up. We said there were no, no, no uh, uh, they said it was a buyer strike, but equally well, it could be a seller strike. And in fact, there is a potential seller strike which, which occurs under these conditions. Basically, if I'm one of the walking wounded, and I know that there's a high probability of failing conditional on illiquidity, then I'm also going to be reluctant to sell those assets. Why? Because if I sell those assets today, I'm selling them at a high discounted price. If I, in fact, fail next, next uh, when that illiquidity hits, I don't care. I'm dead anyway. I can't be dead twice. However, if I hold on to those assets, those assets which are discounted today may, in fact, rise in value so long as they don't face the liquidity shock. I have an incentive to load up on those assets because those assets are correlated with my demise. I don't care about my demise, but if I live, those assets give me a lot of value down the line. Some of you who've seen risk-shifting moral hazard in your, in your corporate finance courses will recognize something like that here. But this is essentially uh, a form of risk-shifting where, where I hold on to really risky assets because I know that those assets, the condition of them falling in value is the condition associated with my demise, and I don't care about that. I care about holding on to them for the return that they will give. So what you have is not so much a buyer's strike, but essentially a seller's strike, because a seller, in selling those assets today, foregoes a put option to default. One example of this is a lot of people were intrigued by the fact that European banks, especially periphery European banks, were loading up during the European sovereign crisis on the debt of their own sovereigns. And some people said, oh, these are the sovereigns forcing them to buy the asset. But it's also incentive compatible to buy sovereign debt if you're a Greek bank, because you know if the Greek government defaults, you're toast anyway. You have so much uh, Greek government debt. So why you know, bother if the Greek government defaults, you, you, you're killed, boom, buy more Greek government debt. Because if the Greek government survives, you're really in, uh, you know, you, you, you've made a killing. Uh, in fact, you won't sell out your Greek government debt at this point because you're selling it at a serious discount. You will hold on to it because essentially you're preserving uh, uh, what, is, uh, what is effectively a put option, a put option on the European system because they're going to bear the cost of failure uh, while you benefit from holding on, from loading on to sovereign debt. So essentially in this kind of environment, when you have complicated assets which have limited buyers, uh, you have uh, a trading and credit freeze. Uh, 
And uh, this is because you anticipate fire sales. Fire sales are a great opportunity for others to buy. They won't lend at this point. That's why a lot of arbitrage relationships break down because lending has broken down. At the same time, you don't get much asset sales because nobody wants to sell those assets. The guys holding on to it know that they benefit from holding on to it rather than selling, even if that can prevent their failure. So what you have is a, an avoidable run and too low a future price for the illiquid security. Uh, you have depressed lending. Uh, the, the real problem is banks don't internalize the effect of their actions, which in this case is holding illiquid assets, um, on the future solvency of other banks and the system. Essentially, they don't sell assets today, even if it makes the bank solvent and run free, because they're betting that they prefer the, uh, the, um, the good state rather than uh, which, uh, bad state it compensates. So in this kind of environment where, where essentially markets are frozen, what works in rescuing the system? And really what works is you have to remove the overhang of potentially insolvent banks, reduce the potential fire sale returns, that itself will increase trading and, and, and lending. And the question is, what did this in the United States? And arguably, it was a stress test done in March 2009, results announced in May 2009, which effectively convinced the system that the overhang of illiquid assets waiting to be dumped on the system were relatively small because many of the banks were certified as close to health or once they raised capital, in fact, healthy. 19 banks were examined by the Fed, 19 of the biggest banks. 10 were asked to raise capital. The details of the bank examinations were made public. And for the banks that did not pass the test, they were set amounts of capital there to raise so that they would pass. And where the capital was not, uh, they could not raise capital, the Treasury basically backstopped them by saying, we'll make capital available. Effectively, what you did was you took the overhang out of the picture. You said there are no more walking wounded, at least in, in big numbers, because all these banks are relatively safe. And you can date the asset price recoveries. The stock market recovered a little earlier, but credit markets recovered uh, quite strongly after the, the stress tests. So what lessons can we take away? What I've essentially argued are the two phases of liquidity. The first part, the first model, uh, was talking about how high liquidity can, in fact, encourage greater leverage and discourage maintaining governance so that you make the system more fragile. When the system essentially uh, liquidity changes, the leverage turns out to be too high to support, and the system collapses. But that is uh, the thing everybody will do, even though the cost for the system can be really high. So you tend to increase leverage anticipating high liquidity. Um, the other side of liquidity is once that crash does come, it may make sense to liquefy the system by infusing liquidity, right? So liquidity bad before the crisis, liquidity good after the crisis. But be careful. Don't infuse too much liquidity for too long after the crisis because you risk generating the next crisis. And that's, that's sort of the message I want to offer. The other authorities may need, up to, need to clean up the system um, even in the midst of a crisis. Uh, need to recapitalize the system, force the recapitalization. That's what the stress test did. That was important. 
I think Europe took a little longer to do it. That made the European problem a little more prolonged in the banking system. The U.S. did it quite fast, and I think that was essential to both restore lending in the system uh, but eliminate the credit freeze that was happening. So liquidity slash capital infusion may be necessary to repair markets. But that raises the question, if a little infusion is good, why not do more? If QE1 is good, why not do QE2, QE3, QE4, et cetera? And I, I would argue that certainly bringing it back here is a good thing, but prolonged liquidity, certainly from a financial sector perspective, I'm not talking about the monetary perspective, is problematic. And this is something that uh, Janet Yellen has complained about, others have, have raised, which is leveraged loans have gone through the roof. Um, these are uh, leveraged loans is uh, uh, um, um, not just leverage but covenant light where you have very few conditions. That's an example of falling governance standards. And what we've seen is those things have recovered but not just recovered, they now dwarf the level that they were before the financial crisis. That's an example of easy liquidity prompting more corporate leverage and reducing corporate credit, credit standards and that's something to worry about. So do infuse liquidity, but worry about the consequences of prolonged easy liquidity. So too much liquidity can be a bad thing for reasons I talked about. And uh, one of the questions that I will leave un unanswered, because I, I don't want to make too strong a claim here, is that easy financial conditions are usually associated with easy monetary policy. And monetary policy and financial stability are hard to separate. Um, how do we address this? Because on the one hand, we need easy monetary policy to maintain economic activity. We saw as the Fed tightened last year, there were apprehensions about slowing economic activity. I don't think that was the only thing, but nevertheless, there were apprehensions. Um, that tempts the Fed to go slow, to, to be more accommodative, but we also saw leverage loans which had uh, the issuance had narrowed towards the end of last year as the Fed tightening was anticipated, have come back in full measure once again. So there is this dichotomy, uh, this uh, problem that monetary conditions that are reasonable for the real economy may be unreasonable for the financial economy, and that's something to think about. That's basically what I had, uh, and thank you for being patient listening to two different models on two different issues. Raghu, thank you so much for a very thoughtful lecture, which was um, quite deep on the theoretical side, but without actually submitting us to too much uh, heavy, explicit theory. But obviously, it's underneath there, and it matters. Um, we now have uh, roughly 25 minutes or so for questions. Um, please make them questions, and um, please say who you are. And we'll take uh, three at a time, um, I mean, blocks of three, three sequentially, but blocks of three, um, and uh, starting now. Uh, is it a gentleman just there, there roving mic? So. Uh, thank you for your lecture. I was wondering if you had a view on the uh, 
Chinese corporate debt levels, because I, I believe there are something around 300% of GDP now. And uh, on top of that, the slowing uh, growth in China, do you see that as a potential, in your own words, fault line? Could you say who you are? My name is Shreyans. I'm an undergraduate here at the LSE. Thank you very much. So we'll take two more and then we'll ask. Uh, there is an LSE tradition of, of gender balance also, I should say. <laughs> but we'll ask you anyway, sir, in the white shirt there. There's just a, a mic coming, just coming down the line. And, and if you could give us your name, please. Thank you very much for your talk. My name is Arjun. I'm uh, an undergraduate here at the LSE as well. Um, I had uh, two questions. Firstly, um, when you said that uh, Covenant Light loans are dwarfing those in 2008, um, do you believe that those loans are safer than the ones in 2008? So the lending conditions are much tighter. And uh, my second question would be, do you mind signing my copy of Fault Lines? Yeah. <laughs> So one more question and we'll turn to Raghu. Shouldn't dis you shouldn't discriminate against that. Anything up there? Up in the there's two hands here. Sorry? Yes, please. Hi, Professor. Thank you so much for your lecture. Um, my question is... Your, your name? name. Um, sorry, my name is Anshit. I'm a general course student uh, at LSE. And my question is basically, to uh, after the financial crisis, what is expected of a central banker? Like, what is most optimal? Should he use a mopping up the mess strategy or should he use a leaning against the wind strategy? And uh, keeping in mind uh, your amazing um, effort in reducing inflation in India from 2013 to 2016, uh, would it be fair to suggest that you would prefer the leaning against the wind strategy? Okay. So there you are. There's three there. Okay. Um, first, uh, Chinese corporate debt levels. Uh, first, I think the 300% the of GDP for corporate debt is too high. I think uh, overall debt levels, depending on your count, uh, some people argue is close to 70%, and that includes both uh, government as well as household debt. And there is an issue of how do you make sure you're not double-counting debt and so on. Nevertheless, the, the reality is corporate, uh, both corporate as well as local government debt has gone up tremendously post-financial crisis. And this clearly is, is the Chinese attempt to increase demand by enhancing credit growth. Uh, and, of course, uh, they've recognized that that is problematic. They call it flooding the fields. And they say the problem with flooding the fields is, of course, it creates further problems down the line. And so they, this time around, they want to irrigate the field rather than flood it. Uh, but again, I mean, the, the problem to some extent is the, the uh, easy way they have of enhancing growth is credit-fueled investment. And, uh, of course, uh, one of their big worries has been that has diminishing returns but also that creates the credit problems for the future, uh, easy liquidity uh, creating future problems. So, so my, my sense is it uh, wasn't great. Uh, it certainly helped the rest of the world because Chinese demand helped enhance growth in those years. Uh, I think they're going to be very circumspect, and they are taking their time about cleaning up the financial system, and it's taking time like any – I mean, they have – a long drawn out crisis rather than a sharp crisis because people trust the government to do what 
you know, to clean it up. Uh, we have yet to see whether the government will be fully successful. That w that's a matter of time. We have to see. Uh, on the uh, covenant uh, light loans, uh, I'm sorry, what was the question on the covenant light loans? I have covenant light loans written here. Yeah, are, are they safer now than oh, yeah. earlier? Oh, yeah. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Nick. Uh, the, uh, it's, it's unclear. I think because the defaults on the covenant light loans post-crisis were relatively mild compared to what happened with uh, the plummeting in values of some of the mortgage-backed securities, people suddenly thought this was safe. Now, the problem, of course, is anything is safe in small quantities. Once you double, triple, quadruple the quantities and change the entities you lend to, it's no longer safe. And my worry is that we're using the data from the crisis to argue that these are perfectly reasonable loans, when in fact that data is strongly outdated since we have substantially more credit that has flowed in this form than earlier. Um, finally, uh, on the financial crisis mopping up versus leaning against the wind, I'm not sure I'd use these phrases. I think one of the problems is once you're in a crisis, you cannot sort of uh, say, I'm going to watch how everything collapses and then pick up the pieces. Uh, you have to intervene, and I think the central bankers who intervened did a wonderful job that essentially they recognized that they had to essentially, uh, you know, do what it took. The uh, question I have more is, you know, once you've gotten over that crisis, then the trade-offs between real growth and, uh, and financial sector uh, risk-taking become uh, sort of uh, more prominent. Uh, and you know, the, over time, you're really trying to enhance real growth, but in the process, uh, you're enhancing leverage, you're enhancing financial sector risk, and you're increasing the risk that, that real growth ends in tears. That's what we have to grapple with, and we have to put our heads around. Uh, certainly, if they raised interest rates earlier, they would be accused of killing growth, but could they have prevented worse outcomes? Nobody rewards you for doing that, by the way, uh, for preventing worse hypothetical in, uh, outcomes, but essentially intervening in preventing real growth. Everybody blames you for killing the system. So, so these are asymmetric incentives involved with cent central banking, and it's something we have to think about. Thank you, Raghu. Now, we'll take three more, three more questions. Let's just see how many hands we've got. Right. Okay. Um, with the gentleman at the front there. Still not getting your gender balance. I know. It's a real struggle. Um, we can't do it by ourselves. Hello. My name is uh, Michael. I'm a visiting PhD student in information systems and associate staff member. Uh, I have a strong uh, tech background, uh, however, my question is towards uh, homogeneity or diversity in um, central bank leadership. So has there always been and is there always a, a clear opinion of a central bank board or leadership staff? Uh, and if not, how are these, uh, how are internal banks, uh, internal discussions resolved uh, once different opinions appear? Thank you. A uh, gentleman just down here. Uh, uh, uh. 
Kaushik Pramanik. Uh, I'm an alumni of LSE and a professional banker. And I am at present working on some project myself to create a property exchange, which is like a more like an exchange for the property trading, which is not available in the world. So our main theme is to increase the liquidity of the mortgage property market and real estate market in the in the globally, not only in the UK, through the property through the property trading, uh, similar to share trading in the exchange. And what do you think the feasibility of increasing the uh, liquidity uh, through the property trading because property is a illiquid asset and we had this crisis in 2008-9 because of that and we need the liquidity in that thank you the gentleman right at the back there Hello, my name's Andrew. I worked uh, for many years at a leading credit rating agency, and I wanted to ask you what you thought about the argument that the tapering of QE would have severe or detrimental knock-on effects on emerging market countries. Okay. Um, um, homogeneity and diversity in central bank leadership. I, I'm not sure what that... Uh, um, question was was trying to get at uh, I mean I, I, I think there are um, diverse opinions uh, and that's why we have committees determining interest rates because you have the hawks you have the doves you have the in-betweens and uh, and somehow a consensus is reached clearly the leader of the central bank uh, Jerome Powell has more weight than some of the others and and uh, there's uh, often, I, I don't think Mervyn King did this. Mervyn King was sometimes in the minority, I, I understand, in, in interest rate decisions. But certainly at the Fed, um, there is an incentive to try and uh, coalesce around the Fed leadership. And it's, I don't think ever the Fed ha has made a decision in which the chairman is not voting with the majority. Uh, I think there's a little bit of a... Uh, you know, I, I was told uh, Chairman Greenspan sent around somebody to find out how the vote was going to go, and his vote then uh, aligned with where the vote was going. Uh, but he also, uh, if he believed strongly against that, he also uh, made efforts to persuade his committee members to go the other way. So, um, I, I, so I think there's a fair amount of discussion. Uh, on the uh, trading on exchanges for mortgage markets, I think uh, that's uh, that's an interesting cost concept. The problem with property is each property is individually different, and therefore there there isn't any kind of uh, um, a sense of uh, of standardization. And now it could be that what you do is do packages of securities. That's what REITs are, and that underlying the REITs are various kinds of properties. And certainly there's a liquid market in, in REIT liabilities traded on the on the stock exchange or or in, in some other exchanges. Um, on the tapering of QE for emerging markets, I certainly think that the possibility that things would change, which is what Ben Bernanke hinted at in May 2013, made a tremendous difference in uh, in uh, the flows to emerging markets and uh, there was certainly a huge amount of volatility as there was an expectation that things would turn around but i think once that expectation sort of uh, got built in that in fact qe was coming to an end the actual process of withdrawing qe 
was much less much less problematic. So uh, really what this speaks to is uh, trying to guide the market to expect change in a, in a reasonable way uh, will prevent some of these sharp changes. Now, of course, sometimes the market doesn't want to be guided. Uh, I mean, whoever thought that it would be QE infinity, uh, but somehow the market seemed to think that QE was uh, in, you know, going to be a prolonged thing. And when uh, Ben Bernanke indicated that there was going to be some turnaround in interest rate setting policy and therefore in QE, uh, there was a substantial amount of apprehension. That's where the tapered tantrum sort of emerged. Thank you. Um, so next round. Um, a gentleman with a cap, cap just there. You need a mic, yeah? Hi, um, my name is Sean. I'm a student at the LSE currently. My question is, do you think that central banks are the only game in town? And can you talk about this from the perspective of developed markets against developing markets and your view now, and does it change into the future? Thank you. Sorry, what do you mean the only game in town? Um, I guess like in terms of consolidation in financial markets. So I think um, Professor Ragu actually talked about this in one of his previous um, conferences somewhere in the world. Thank you. Um, lady just here. Hi, my name is Mira, and I'm a master's student here at the LSC. Um, I, was, I know you recently been talking about governments and how they have to address social inequality. Um, what do central banks, what can central banks do to address this, and, or should they even be addressing this in general? As a lady just here, please. Um, hello. Thank you so much for an amazing talk. Uh, I'm Pallavi. I'm a secondary economics student at KCL. And I wanted to personally thank you for replying to my email. I mean, I was the one who wrote you the birthday email. And um, my question is, do you think if there was a systematic policy that the high street, the walking wounded banks, could uh, turn around their bad assets into a very strong portfolio, do you think the impact and the consequences of a crisis would be reduced? Or would a crisis even happen? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so let me start backwards, because that's, that's directly related to the talk. Um, if you. If you do, um, um, you know, if, if the assets that they hold recover, or if you clean them up, they have the same effect, that those assets aren't waiting to be dumped on the market. So there's no anticipation that there would be a very high return opportunity down the line. The incentive to hold on to cash, anticipating that high return opportunity diminishes, lending starts uh, sort of being taken up, and uh, you know, the trading freezes stop. So either cleaning up the banking system and saying there's, there is no, uh, no liquidity uh, crisis going to come, and there are no fire sales going to be anticipated is, is one. But even if the assets recover, that's, that's another way that things can, can turn around. Um, the other two questions are related. Uh, one of uh, 
the, the, the pressures on central banking through the crisis and afterwards has been, uh, as you say, they've been seen as the only game in town. And in fact, Ben Bernanke made a speech talking about central banks being the only game in town. Now, there are a couple of concerns with that first, uh, which is that there's a certain amount of moral hazard in policy. If you say you're the only game in town and you're, you're willing to do what it takes, then uh, politicians sort of rest assured, you're the, you're the only game in town, you're gonna to take care of it. And there's less pressure on them to do something. Now, I'm not saying that politicians will neglect things, but as Jean-Claude Juncker said, we know what to do, but we don't know how to get elected once we do it. So uh, if, if what you need to do is hard decisions, uh, you have a temptation to postpone it when in fact there's somebody else taking care of the store. So it is important to, for central banks to communicate what they can do and what they have less power of over. And that sort of, I think, conflicts with the central banker uh, desire and need to portray confidence. We can take care of low inflation because we have lots of tools. They can't portray anything less than that confidence because expectations are really one way of dealing with a problem. But in portraying that confidence that they have plenty of tools, they, they, they can deal with any of the problems, uh, it also risks sending the signal that you can fix pretty much anything. And, and you can't. You may even have very limited tools to fix inflation once it's, bull I mean, we've been trying for 10 years to get inflation back up to 2%, and you know, basically only the Fed has succeeded. Uh, so in this environment, there is a real question of how much should you, should you claim you can do, and how much should you be realistic? And which leads to the next question on this issue of inequality. I mean, central banks have now got entangled in, can they do something about inequality? Well, really, you can't. Uh, I mean, you can affect asset prices, but most people are talking about income inequality. And there's not that much you can do on income inequality. You can run the economy a little hotter, more people have jobs. But a lot of the job, a lot of the inequality comes from the shape of wage profiles uh, getting much more skewed. And that's not something the central bank can do a lot about. You can depress financial sector salaries a lot by creating a crisis. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, there's not that much... Uh, constructive that you can do on that. So I, I worry sometimes that, uh, you know, first central bankers look more like supermen or superwomen uh, uh, because of what they have done. Uh, but in fact, they don't have a huge amount of tools in the armory. And second, as they look more grand, it also puts them in conflict with the political establishment. Political establishment wants elected people to look grand not technocrats who should be in dark rooms and, and uh, talking about uh, uh, in language that uh, only they should understand. They don't want these people to be communicating to the public. The central bank has become much more public post-crisis. I think many of these central bankers would want to go back into that room and not be on the front page every day, but it's very hard once you've come out into the open uh, to go back. That sounded just slightly personal there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but as, as, as you learned to say in the Treasury, um, I couldn't possibly comment, so I'm not asking you. Um, 
the just have one last round of three, please. The gentleman up the top there. Hi, thanks for the talk. Uh, my name is Oliver Davis, uh, formerly a grad student here um, and now at the Bank of England. So you mentioned that um, you think that monetary policy should take into account uh, financial stability implications. I wondered, in the context of the bank, um, which has separate policy committees for financial policy and monetary policy, if you could maybe elaborate on how you think that, that would work in practice uh, and perhaps mention whether you think this would be a consistent uh, application or whether there would be certain times, for instance, when deploying unconventional monetary policy, when this synthesis between monetary policy making and fi financial stability uh, would be more pertinent. Uh, a gentleman at the back there. Hi, I'm Shrey. I'm a first-year undergraduate at LSE. So my question would be, given that many central bankers have been, have been setting policy... You're a bit closer to your... Um, my question is, given many central bankers have been accused of short-termism when setting policy, what is your view on the current length of, length of terms for central bank governors in Europe and the US? Last question. Um, the gentleman right over there, sorry. Hello, um, my name is Jacob Schettelbauer. I'm also an alumni at LSE and also work at the Bank of England now. Um, you hinted that stress tests played an important part in clearing up the uh, last crisis and they've now developed into kind of a key tool of, uh, of the central bank toolkit. Do you think these are sufficient in their current form or do you see some benefit in maybe expanding them to cover other aspects such as liquidity and fire sale um, given the, the link to your talk? Um, on the financial stability and monetary policy, uh, I think this is a emerging, developing area, and, and I think uh, the BIS should be commended for bringing this issue up repeatedly. Uh, and and I think the the message there that that I take away is uh, in ordinary times, uh, which is uh, I would guess pre 1995 uh, or 99. 98, that uh, we had regular cycles, and uh, essentially uh, we had inflation as a problem, which then meant that there was a natural cycle to monetary policy also, that you uh, had tightening to combat inflation, and therefore you didn't have the steady buildup in financial sector risks because of those regular cycles. Uh, but as uh, we've had very low inflation, and uh, there is an ability to keep monetary policy very accommodative for very long. Uh, even the very accommodative for very long is a different kind of monetary policy, forget the QE and so on, than we used to have in the past. And that then, uh, low for long, itself may uh, result in exacerbated, uh, in the financial sector, seeing an exacerbated sense of liquidity and taking the kinds of risks that, that it takes. So, so I would argue that uh, there does seem to be some rationale uh, 
for thinking about this, a number of people who are far better, uh, sort of, uh, who are far closer to monetary policy objective setting have argued that perhaps you can bring in financial sector concerns into the medium-term inflation targeting framework by arguing that if, in fact, you allow financial sector risk to build up, you may have a severe disinflation if, in fact, the crisis hits. And you want to prevent that also if you're symmetric around the 2% inflation target. And that may be a reason you will combat financial sector risk. Now, those are all fairly implicit uh, in the overall objective. The real problem is, is what we alluded to earlier. If you, in fact, uh, normalize interest rates saying that I want to offset financial sector risks, but your mandate is 2% inflation, uh, there's the risk a lot of people will tell you why you're normalizing when, in fact, inflation is still below the 2%. So maybe there's a need to make the financial, sec financial uh, uh, mandate uh, and, of course, then you run into this whole debate between uh, macroeconomists and, uh, and, and financial sector people. The financial sector people will emphasize the financial sector risk. The macroeconomists will emphasize the low real activity. Uh, and uh, this is a debate that uh, will go on for some time. So uh, the quick answer, the short answer is we don't know yet how, how much emphasis to put on each of these. But it is a very important issue because even if financial sector risks occur, occur once every 10, 15 years, if it amounts to a cost of 10, 15% of GDP, uh, it may offset all the benefit you've built over the good times. Um, the second, uh, the uh, short-termism of, I, I wasn't aware the central bankers were particularly short-term in setting policy. In fact, one of the benefits of central bankers is the, the, the uh, club, in some sense, uh, is so aware of its inflation-fighting mandate that, in fact, it's accused of the opposite, sometimes working too hard on inflation when, in fact, the, the public mood is for allowing a little more uh, leeway on inflation. I, I, I mean, I think there's a rationale for keeping a reasonable term for central banker um, terms. I don't know what that is. Uh, is it four? Is it five? Is it six? And you have all kinds. Uh, but I, I, I'm not sure that's, that's a central issue. Long enough to make a difference uh, in terms of, uh, of some of the policies, but not so long that they overstay their welcome. What is that? I don't know. Uh, finally, on the stress tests, uh, I, I do think the stress tests were very useful. Um, I, I'm not sure. Uh, so, so the stress tests were very useful in building confidence about the nature of the system at that point in time. Uh, I do uh, think there is a legitimate question to be asked. Do we need to keep doing the stress tests? Are we creating uh, a sort of impression that we've looked at the books, we're confident, therefore you should be confident? Is it a bill of health for the system? And if it is a bill of health, are we reducing the system's incentives to take adequate precautions itself? Uh, once everybody is convinced the, the, the doorkeeper or the night watchman has certified the system as healthy, maybe we continue taking risks and don't do our independent investigation. And then you always have the risk the night watchman may be wrong, looked at the wrong uh, sort of indicators of stress. So, so I would argue that that uh, we need to also think about that aspect, 
that maybe there is a time you discontinue stress tests because you don't want to uh, sort of convey this impression, uh, all's well at 8 o'clock, and uh, be happy, take more risk. Uh, uh, what is the optimal frequency and uh, what is the optimal timing? Is it just after a crisis or not? I mean, that all that can be debated. I just wanted to highlight the downside. And whether you take liquidity or not, I mean, if you did one after the crisis, I think the primary issue was solvency. Uh, because you want to make sure these weren't going to unload assets in the, in the context of my model. Uh, whether they had ongoing liquidity, uh, et cetera, et cetera, only to the extent that it affected these, these kinds of uh, assets, uh, it would be important. Uh, but if they were solvent and there was a backstop behind them, I think uh, that would be enough in the context of the model. Thank you, Raghu. It, it, it's my duty now to um, thank you on behalf of everybody here and the LSE um, for absolutely splendid lecture, for your thoughtfulness in responding to all the, the questions. Um, I've learned enormously today. I'm sure uh, everybody else has as well. And um, if I could close just by observing that uh, great academics who become great public figures are very rare. Um, even more rare are great academics who become great uh, public figures and then become great academics again. <laughs> so it, it's a special privilege to be with you, and I think that had Lionel Robbins and I.G. Patel been able to be with us tonight, they would have been enormously appreciative. So thank you very much, Raghu.